I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is a pioneer and one of the world's leading experts in a topic that we so badly need, the topic of self-compassion. Dr. Kristen Neff is one of the first to actually measure the concept and put it in a topic of research that can be documented and shared with the rest of us. Her book, simply titled Self-Compassion, is a valuable reference on the topic and a bestseller that I'd strongly recommend for you to look at. She also developed an eight-week program to teach self-compassion skills in daily life called Mindful Self-Compassion. She doesn't need a lot of introduction, but she has a lot to give us. So let's just jump in. Kristen, it's wonderful to have you with me today. First of all, I am so honored that you joined me. I really have been waiting for this for a while. Oh, thank you, Mo. I'm really happy to be here. And nice to meet you as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny that we haven't, you know, connected before. I mean, Mark uh, Williamson's, when, when I interviewed him here on uh, Slow Mo, was, uh, Mark is a very, very dear friend. And he was like, you didn't have Kristen here yet? I was like, what are you talking about? This <laughs> can't be complete without Kristen. So, you know, uh, yeah. And he's right, actually. That now, you know, now that I'm, I'm more aware of your work, I think it's, uh, it's definitely something that is very much in the spirit of what I'm trying to do here. I, I want to start in 1997. If you, if you don't mind sharing your story, I think it gets my listeners to really get to know you as much as I got to know you. Yeah. So basically 1997 was my last year of graduate school. I was finishing up my PhD at um, the University of California at Berkeley. uh, And my life was just not going well, right? So first of all, I was under stress in in my professional life. Just just really, you know, after spending seven years of my life getting this PhD, would I get a job? The job market was really tight. There was absolutely no guarantee. And there was a lot of kind of fear around that. I'd been in school my whole life, you know, what's next? Um, And then in my personal life, I had just gotten out of a divorce and it was a really messy divorce. There was just a lot of shame involved and I was, you know, doubting myself. And um, it just, I just wasn't in a good place. I was a basket case to use use the phrase. And so what had happened was I, I decided to learn meditation because I'd heard that meditation was good for stress and I was feeling a lot of stress. And there was a, a group taught by, um, in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a wonderful Vietnamese Zen master. I'm sure you're aware of him. And so I went to learn mindfulness meditation and to great, greatly just my surprise, they talked not only about mindfulness and about meditation, but also about self-compassion, about the importance of really you know, um, turning that kind of kind, supportive voice inward as well as outward. You know, I, I was a pretty compassionate person and I, you know, was interested in compassion, but I had never even considered the possibility of being compassionate to myself, my own struggles. So what had happened was, um, you know, I, I just started trying to be kinder and more supportive to myself and I was feeling shame or I was feeling stress. I would just kind of be there for myself and I would speak to myself 
the way I, you know, naturally speak to a good friend. And I was just really blown away uh, by the difference it made. It, it just yeah. it was just night and day, my ability to cope with it and, you know, my ability to not be so overwhelmed. And, and that's really where my interest in self-compassion started. And, and so that became your, your research from then onwards? Is that what you, what, what were you studying then? What, what actually happened was, um, well, I was also getting more interested in Buddhism and kind of the idea of the self and, you know, what is the self, the thing we call the self and the, the causes of suffering. So I actually did a two years of postdoctoral study with one of the country's leading self-esteem researchers. And she, she was, looked at self-concept development and self-esteem and authenticity and all those things I was getting very interested in. And so while I was working with her, I started, you know, understanding all the downsides of self-esteem. No. I mean, at least in America, there was a real, there was a real backlash against self-esteem. Not that you want to have low self-esteem. I mean, it's better to think you're worthy than to think you're unworthy for sure. But the problem is how, how people get their sense of self-esteem. There's a lot of unhealthy things we do, like a narcissism is one way people get their self-esteem or feeling special and above average or constantly comparing ourselves to other people. So we feel being a better in comparison, which means we put other people down. Um, th- things like bullying, you know, why do kids start to bully? Because they want to raise their self-esteem. They want to feel like they're the cool kid and that's the nerdy kid or the weak kid. And then also the, the, one of the biggest problems with self-esteem is that it's contingent. In other words, you know, it's there for us when we succeed, but what happens when we fail, you know, and, and we fall flat on our face or we get rejected? Precisely when we need that sense of self-worth to kick in, it deserts us. If, if our self-esteem depends on being good at things that we want to be good at. And so it, it, I was learning about that while doing my postdoc. And in my personal life, I was practicing self-compassion. And I just thought, well, this is the perfect alternative <laughs> to self-esteem <laughs> because it's a way to feel good about yourself, right? You, but, but you're good about yourself, not because you're better than others or because you're getting it right. You're good at yourself. You're kind to yourself just because you're a flawed human being like everyone else who's worthy of compassion. Oh, wow. And, you know, it's much more stable. So then when I got, I did get a real job at University of Texas at Austin. Um, and that's when I decided I wanted to research it. It was kind of a leap because no one had looked at it before. And, in, in, you know, at least I could, people talked about it in, in like humanistic psychology and, and Buddhism, but no one had actually defined it or measured it or researched it. And so that's what I did. Yeah, and that was almost 20 years ago now. That's quite, it's, it's quite eye-opening now that you tell that story of, you know, what, we, we definitely are brought up, at least in the Western societies, to really, really value self-esteem. And as, yeah. you, as you rightly say, it's actually something that most of us from the Eastern cultures would not really understand. Why do I need to be better than anyone to feel good about myself? Exactly. But, but, then, but then the interesting thing that you said, which really sort of got my heart heart shaking a little, which was when you said, and then I learned that it's okay to have self-compassion. It's like, you know, I'm doing this and, and, you know, somehow you're like, yeah, yeah, it's, you know, you should care for yourself too. And most of us actually don't know that. Most of us actually don't believe it's the right thing to do. We treat ourselves so harshly. So, so why is it that we on one side are motivated to do something that's not really good for us? definitely not good for society, but completely ignoring what's actually good for us, which is self-compassion. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it is society gets it wrong. I mean, you know, at least in Western society, partly because they want to sell us all these products. (laughs) They also want us to feel better and special. And, you know, if you buy these jeans, you'll be special and people love you. And, you know, part of it's our consumer driven society. And you're right. The need for self-esteem is a little different in the East. It's more about having self-esteem because you're a good societal member. Mm. Um, Although, you know, self-esteem, 
self-esteem is still important in all societies, but, but we really believe, and this is both in the East and West, like places like China, they also do this. There, there's this belief that self-criticism is good for us, that it keeps us in line, that it motivates us to improve, that it keeps us from being self-indulgent, you know, keeps us, keeps us from being selfish. And so it's kind of like the, the, the approach we used to have in parenting, you know, mm. spare the rod, spoil the child. Society really tells us or gives us the message anyway that we need to be hard on ourselves to keep ourselves in line. When all, just like the research with children shows, actually you're going to get, you're going to help your child so much more if you're kind and supportive and loving. Yes, you draw boundaries. Yes, you, you know, say this is okay, this isn't okay. You guide your child. But even if your child fails, you don't tell them they're a piece of crap to try to make, help them get better. You say, <laughs> hey, I love you. How can we do this better? And it's the exact same thing with ourselves. And, and the research really strongly supports that. Um, but people don't really know that yet. They're starting to get on board with our parenting styles, luckily, but not so much with ourselves. So, yeah, I think it's society. And I also think another, another I think it's, an, it's a natural response as well. It's the fight, fight or flight response. You know, when we see a problem, like often we attack the problem. But when the problem's us, like we attack ourselves thinking it's going to keep ourselves safe or we flee in shame thinking that's going to keep us safe, you know, or we freeze, like we just get, get really stuck thinking that's going to keep us safe. And so that natural desire for safety, which comes from our like really kind of automatic um, reaction of fight or flight kicks in with self-criticism. But, but then we have another way to feel safe, which is kind of being connected, feeling loved, feeling part of a larger whole you know, like with an infant is with its family, you know, it releases oxytocin and opiates and it also feels safe through connection. So we can feel safe by fighting the problem. We can also feel safe by connecting with others. And so what we're doing really with self-compassion is we're connecting with ourself the same way we might connect with others. And we still get the same benefits, you know, physiologically it activates our parasympathetic nervous system. We calm down, you know, we don't have data connecting this exactly, but very likely we're releasing oxytocin. Like when we put our hand on our heart and tell ourselves supportive things, our body is reacting in a similar way that it would if someone else did that for us. And so um, it's really about finding a sense of safety as well. You know, and it's really all about safety because why do people beat themselves up even if they do it because for cultural reasons? Because they think it's going to keep them safe. They think it's going to help. Yeah. It's yeah. Just, it's just, sadly, it's just flat wrong is the problem with it. You know, it's like you shouldn't beat yourself up for beating yourself up because you're just doing it to try to stay safe and be a better <laughs> yeah. person. Yeah. But it's just not very effective. But, but so, so, so you, use, you use the word word attack, which actually is quite a strong word, but it's actually very true. We attack ourselves. We attack and ourselves. We, and and, and we, we're harsh. Like we're so harsh sometimes. We tell ourselves things that we, we wouldn't tell someone we love. And, and would you be... You, you wouldn't that, even tell an enemy. Okay, <laughs> yeah, honestly, sometimes, yeah. you know, the way we, the expectation we have of ourselves and the way we push ourselves there. Do, do you believe that this also like is the opposite true? Like, you know, self-compassion will give you oxytocins and feel good hormones and you know, will make you feel part of a bigger whole. Does that attack actually affect us negatively? I mean, does it work oh, against us? Absolutely, absolutely. The data is very clear on this. Um, so first of all, what you're doing is you're activating the sympathetic nervous system that, you know, when you're really reactive. Um, so it leads to like, we release cortisol and adrenaline. So um, what happens is it leads to like high blood pressure and hypertension, which leads to heart attack. And that, that's one way it goes, stress, heart attacks. The other way it goes is depression. So when you mm. constantly criticize yourself, basically one, one of the ways we deal with that attack is just by shutting down and we become depressed. 
So absolutely, bad for our mental and physical health. That, that's that's when, like, when a parent is attacking a child constantly, and then and then you sort of the child would start to say, okay, you know what, I'm not going to listen to them anymore. That's you know by the by closing down and being in depression. Yes. Is that what we're doing? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, the same thing. So so you know, and and really, it's like this: the vo- the voice inside of our head is kind of our internal parent. You know what? We, and, by, and by the way, I have to say, it's not we can't blame it all on our parents. So for instance, my son Rowan. I mean, I talk about him a lot. He's he's autistic, and um, I catch him really really being harsh on myself, on himself. Now, I've never once in my life criticized him. I've, I've talked about self-compassion from the time he was like little. Mm. He still does it, right? So is it, so is not, it innate in us? Me. Well, I think what it is, is um, part, part of the autism is a lot of anxiety and fear. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so like he, he watches cartoons. He's never heard me do, do it, but he watches cartoons. And in cartoons, like, you know, Bullies pick, pick on people who make mistakes or mess up and beat them up. So he, he's actually like afraid that someone's going to be harsh with him, even though I've never been harsh with them. And so like he does it to himself first. It's like, it's, a, it's, it's not logical, but it's natural, right? I'm going to beat myself up first, A, to keep myself in line because it's really scary that I might, he gets really frightened when he makes a mistake because it's like, it seems to be out of control. And we all do. It's really scary that we're imperfect people who make mistakes. You know, we'd, we'd so much rather be perfect and never flawed and not make mistakes because it's scary to make mistakes. And so it helps him feel safe and in control if he can harshly criticize himself for two reasons. A, he thinks it'll keep him from doing it again. And B, it's like beating the other person to the punch. He thinks it's going <laughs> to, he's going to protect himself from these imagined bullies. You know, even, and I like to use this as an example because oftentimes it is our real life history, our parents or our early childhood experiences, but not always. It, I, I can definitely say it has not been the case with Ron and he still does it. So there's something just about like just our nervous system reaction, mm. that sense of fear and fight or flight that leads us to do it as well. So are so many, you know, uh, typical physical or psychological reactions that we learn to avoid. I mean, like if you leave me, I'll eat chocolate all day. Like, you know, that's my natural makeup. It's like, give me a chocolate factory. I'll just put my mouth right there under the nozzle and life will be fine. But mm-hmm. I managed to, to teach myself not to do that. So what, yes. what, would you, what would you suggest we do to overcome? I mean, what, what is self-compassion? Let's start as an engineer. Let's yeah. define what is compassion and then define what is self-compassion so, so that we have a, an accurate agreement on what we're talking about. Okay. So, so compassion, I mean, in, in general, the scientific field is defined as concern with the alleviation of suffering and the motivation to do something about it. Okay. So it's like when we care and it's different than I empathy. Empathy is feeling what other people are feeling, but like a con man may have great empathy. I might feel what you feel, but I may not care about how you feel. Mm. So compassion means, you know, you're aware of, suffering and you've got this desire to help in some way. Um, and so the same with self-compassion, but actually, I actually have an expanded definition. So, you know, when I, when I first decided to measure it, I had to come up with a clear definition so I could measure it. And from my point of view, there's, there's three elements that need to be there in order to make self-compassion a healthy, positive, stable state of mind. So there is this kindness, this idea that we care about ourselves, we try to help, we want to alleviate our own suffering. Um, but I, from my point of view, you also need mindfulness. You have to be aware of your struggles. Oh, you have to be aware of your topic. pain. Absolutely. You have to be aware in a certain way. 
Absolutely. It's not like I'm aware of like, oh my God, I'm freaking out. You know, that's not, that's not, you can't give yourself compassion when you're freaking out, right? But you also can't give yourself compassion if you're like shoving it down and I'm just going to go forward and just deal with it, you know, and just, you know, not not think about it. So you need that step of mindfulness. Mindfulness is kind of a a meta awareness. You kind of step outside of yourself and say, this is what's happening right now in the present moment. And you actually need that little bit of perspective to treat yourself like you would treat a friend right? So instead of being lost in it, which I call being over-identified, instead of being lost in the pain, you give yourself some space, you kind of have this equilibrium and you say, wow, I'm having a really hard time right now. And that's that little bit of space you need to treat yourself like a good friend, right? So how do we get there? Well, in a way, we can't get there without mindfulness. So mindfulness is like essential to be able even to, to give ourselves compassion, to have the space to do so. And then the third element, which is really important, is, uh, is other people, common humanity, right? So in other words, um, with the word compassion means to suffer with in the Latin, you know, passion, suffer, come with. So it's really different than self-pity or pity for others. Pity is like, I look down on other people. Self-pity is like, woe is me, poor me. Compassion is connected by, by, by definition, right? So we realize that everyone's imperfect. Everyone struggles. Everyone leads a difficult life, you know, some more than mm-hmm. others, absolutely. But this is the human experience. And so we need that sense that that's what gives us a sense of connectedness that also makes us feel safe, makes us realize that it's not just us. So the way I define and measure self-compassion, there's three elements. So there's the kindness, but there's also the mindfulness and the sense of common humanity. I, I want to I talk about common humanity before I visit. So, so let me summarize those. So, uh, the, in, in a simple way, I need to be mindful enough to realize that I'm going through suffering, I, I, you know, to realize what kind of suffering it is and so on. And not just to be lost in it, to kind of have a little... And, and yeah, exactly. And, and then I need to be kind to myself. Yes. And I, I want to talk a lot about that. Yeah. Uh, but, but then the third maybe is, is one that is lost a little. Is, you know, it's like, it's almost like the first noble truth of the Buddha, which basically says, you know, suffering is pervasive. We're going to all suffer, sort of. Yes, yes. How does that help? Oh, it helps tremendously because when we think we're all alone, when we think it's just us, we're adding insult to injury because not only are we suffering, we feel all alone in our suffering. And it, and it makes it very, a lot worse. And it also might be a little self-centered. Self-pity is not a healthy mind state because it's so self-focused. Again, there's no objectivity. There's no, it's hard to get yourself out of, the, why, why do they call it the rabbit hole of self-pity? Because it's like this dark hole you go down and there's no way out. But when you remember that it's not just me, you know, this is part of life. Um, so for instance, I know when I dealt with my son's autism, you know, if I went down the path of self-pity, why me? Then I would just feel isolated. I would feel depressed. But when I remembered, okay, well, first of all, there are a lot of other autism parents, but even if your child doesn't have autism, stuff happens, you know, people get mental stuff. I mean, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't know the story with your son, but you know, it, this is part of being a parent. Absolutely. All parents have challenges and struggles. And, and so going from a place of self-pity, why, why is my son autistic to, well, this is, my, this is the particular type of struggle I have that everyone struggles, then I didn't feel so alone. Mm. And that really gave me a sense of safety and security, knowing that I was part of this larger whole. You know, and if you really, if you really take it far enough, it's kind of the wisdom element of compassion. Right. So compassion, if compassion isn't just concerned with concerned with suffering, it's also the wise understanding of suffering, the wisdom of knowing, you know, so many causes and conditions come together to, to create life the way it is and to create ourselves the way we are. So instead of simplistic judgments, you know, I'm bad, this person is bad, it sees the 
the bigger picture, the complexity that arose in order to create ourselves in this moment. And mm. it's the wisdom of self-compassion that, that's kind of part of that part component of common humanity. So it's, it's really crucial. If we don't have it, self-pity is just, it's not very useful. And, and, and so in, in that way, you know, that whole concept of, you know, life is unfair to me. Why does this always happen to me? You know, I'm, yeah. I'm the unlucky one. What have I done wrong? All of yes. that goes away just because you suddenly realize that's just part of living. It's just like the coffee you had in the morning. That's what, there was nothing special about that. There were, there were like a few billion others that had a coffee in the morning too, yeah. right? Exactly. And so what, what that does, it also, so it helps, they all feed into each other. So for instance, when I realize it's not just me, it's part of life, then that also helps me resist it a little less. When mm. I say it's part of life, then I can say, okay, this happens, which actually helps me to be more mindful and mm. less resistant. And we know that resistance, resisting pain amplifies it, you know, mm. which is the basic mm. principle mm. of mindfulness. So that, mm. And so when we, when we stop resisting our pain because we realize it's not just me, then that also helps us to be kinder <laughs> and to alleviate our suffering because we aren't causing the suffering through resistance. So they all kind of work together as a system, these three elements. So, so are you saying, I, I want to go to kindness, but one more question first. So are you saying that we should have compassion to ourselves, not only when we are the cause of the problem, but when the problem happens from outside us? So if so, if- Ab- absolutely. So, so yeah, so I, I didn't, you know, cause my son's autism. It happened. Well, I guess you could say my genes did, but right. So at COVID, for instance, self-compassion is tremendously useful in something like a pandemic. Um, even if we don't feel like we've done anything to cause it, it's just happening. But how do we relate to our struggle and our pain and our fear in this situation? So, so we're aware of it. Yeah, this is really hard for me. You know, we're, we're kind to ourselves. We're supportive. We're, we're kind of emotionally there for ourselves. Um, and also recognizing that it's not just us. Now, in some ways, it's easier in a global pandemic. It's actually very unusually easy. Usually, it's very hard to remember that. But in this case, mm-hmm. we kind of can't escape it. But so when we don't feel so alone, we just feel more supportive, we feel stronger. And actually, you know, if you look at the attachment system, it's kind of related to basic psychology. When we feel we're part of a larger whole, that we're attached to other people, then we feel safe. And that sense of safety is uh, actually counteracts that fight or flight response. That's so interesting because, because what you're saying here is that feeling that we're all not safe together makes us feel safe. Is that, is, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. In a way, you might say that. But just, know, it's, you know, we can say that we aren't all safe together, but also, the, you know, just we aren't alone. The imperfection is, a, is, is part of life. We don't fight. We, sometimes we think, like, I'm supposed to be perfect. Like when something difficult happens, everyone else in the world is living a normal, perfect life, and it's just me who's screwed up, or it's just me who's struggling. Not that's true just at all. not reality. Yeah. And, and that's why it is a wisdom practice, yeah. really, because it's just opening to the reality that this is life. You know? and, and, and once we have that wisdom, it also gives us more vision to see, well, maybe there's something else I can do. You know, you know, it's it's almost it's almost I can he, I can almost hear you when you're talking to yourself and how you can be so kind to yourself just by you explaining this. But but tell us a bit more about kindness. I mean, let's try to be practical for our listeners. Yes. What what does being kind to oneself look like? Being kind to oneself looks very similar to how you'd be kind to someone else. And that's why, you know, self-compassion is not rocket science. You don't have to sit and meditate for 30 minutes a day to learn it. Luckily, you know, actually just 
just as effective as saying, okay, I'm going through the situation. Maybe, you know, you're having a relationship issue or, um, you know, health issue. You can just say, what would I say to a dear friend I cared about who was going through the exact same situation? We already, we already know what kindness feels like. We know how to, the tone of voice to use. We know our body posture. We know the types of supportive things to say. You know, I care. I'm here for you. What do you need? How can I help? You know, I'm with you. I love you. You know, we, we already know how to do it. We just have to give ourselves permission to do it with ourselves. And yet it does feel, it feels weird at first. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, Pretend it doesn't. It does feel weird, but it doesn't feel weird to talk to us and like say, you this, you that, because we do it all the time with self-criticism. You're such a lazy, good for nothing. You know, we're just used to that voice. So we just change the content of the voice to be more supportive and kind, you know, and also physical touch is also a really effective way to give ourselves compassion because as humans, we evolved to be very sensitive to touch as a communicator of care. Um, also tone of voice. So, you know, for the first two years of life before language, before infants get language, parents and children, they communicate love and support and care just through the tone of voice and through physical touch. And so those are, those are also two things we can do. We can put our hand on our heart, give ourselves a hug or just hold your hand, you know, put your hand on your face. Some sort of physical touch, which works at the level of the nervous system. You know, you're activating your parasympathetic nervous system through physical touch. You're feeling physically supported. You're reminding yourself of your own presence physically through touch. You feel the warmth of your hand. Warmth also activates this, this, this attachment caregiving care response use a warm tone of voice as opposed to a harsh tone of voice you know warm kind again just so you, you would naturally do this to a child or a friend you cared about and then you try to say things that are supportive you know it's it's easy it's simple and it's amazingly powerful it clearly is i mean it's it's i'd be really disappointed if some of our listeners didn't get this made it a very you know um practical habit that you can do every day. And it's so easy when you think about it. It's just, I'm going to imagine myself talking to someone I love. And, yes. and that's it. Uh, you can, uh, there's, there's really three ways in. You, you can imagine that you're talking to someone that you care about. You can imagine that someone that you care about is talking to you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you had a great grandmother who is just mm -hmm. so important. In your How life would she imagine. talk to me? Or Jesus, you know, if you have mm -hmm. spiritual practice or religious, you know, you can, you can use a spiritual figure to imagine, you know, what would Jesus say to me right now? I think people uh, often naturally do that, oftentimes in, in re religious practice. That's kind of what they're doing. And then you can also just talk to yourself. So, so these days, I don't really imagine I'm talking to a friend. I just talk to myself because I'm so used to it. So I don't need to take those other steps. But those are those really three ways you can you can access it. Do, do you think this, this can be extended into further bringing compassion into your life, choosing people that will talk to you this way, choosing to stop people when they talk to you differently, choosing to forget the conditioning that you've been given? Yes. So, um, so, so, so there's really two aspects of self-compassion. And I kind of borrow the yin and yang metaphor from Chinese philosophy because I like it because we're most of us in the West are familiar with it, but not too familiar, which is useful, <laughs> right? So the idea is there's these two kind of fundamental forces of nature. There's yin, which is kind of more soft, nurturing, yielding side of life. And there's also yang, which is more of a hard, forceful, um, powerful side of life. And we always need both. And so there's both sides to self-compassion. The yin side of self-compassion is about just being with ourselves in a kind way, right? So we're loving toward ourselves. 
Um, we're, we're present with ourselves. We're present with the way things are, our own imperfection or the pain of life. Um, and we just remember that we're connected, right? So loving, connected presence. We give ourselves loving, connected presence. We're kind of, it's almost like a mother, how a mother might be with their child. Even if that child is screaming, you know, we kind of rock that child and soothe that child. So we soothe ourselves. We reassure ourselves that we aren't alone. And we're just with ourselves. And this is really kind of the healing power of self-compassion. But, you know, compassion isn't just about being with. If you're um, a firefighter and you come to a building with people like trapped inside, you don't say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm here for you. You know, <laughs> that's not compassion. Or you jump in the building, you risk your life to like save the people inside. So sometimes to alleviate suffering, we need to do something. So sometimes it's about protection. You know, so if I'm in a relationship, so to get back to your point, if I'm in a relationship that's bad for me or someone's mistreating me, the kindest thing to do for myself is to get out of the relationship or to say something, to stand up and say, hey, that's not okay for you to say this to me. So protection is one way to alleviate our suffering. Also, uh, meeting our needs, providing for ourselves. I mean, especially women in society, we've been, we've been so socialized to just always meet others' needs, do for others, you know, just to sacrifice, self-sacrifice. And if we're really going to care for ourselves, you know, we also need to think, well, what, what, what do I need to be happy? What's important for me? What do I value? Again, not in a selfish way, but, you know, including ourselves. So actually, and sometimes that means taking actions, you know, doing something that you really love or taking up a hobby or, you know, rebalancing work and family life or something like that, taking action to meet your own needs. Um, and then finally, you know, one of the biggest things that self-compassion does, and people get this wrong, the number one block to self-compassion is people think it's going to undermine their motivation. It's going to make them lazy. Yeah. It's the exact opposite. Self-compassion makes you more motivated. So if you care, just like a compassionate parent, a compassionate parent motivates their child to go to school and get good grades and eat healthy and be happy in life and learn the things they need to do. That's part of being a good parent. A good parent doesn't just say, yeah, whatever, you know, I love you. And just, yeah, you don't want to go to school. No problem, little sweetheart. You know, that's not compassionate. <laughs> You're hurting yeah, your child. Yeah, yeah. You know, so if we care about ourselves, we're going to motivate changes to A, reach our goals in life, to try to, you know, realize our full potential and also to change behaviors that are harmful. That's part of being a caring, loving, supportive person to ourselves. And the research supports that absolutely. Part of compassion is to want to be successful, is to want yourself to be in a place where you're actually, where life is easy, right? Yeah, and so here's, here's the thing, it's yin and yang, right? So I might really try something, maybe I, I, it's really important to me, I, you know, I wanna get my PhD. And so you try it and you give it your best because you think it'll make you really happy. And you know, hopefully that will, that being supportive will help you reach your goal. But if you don't, then you also have the yin self-compassion to fall back on. So it's like I love this dance this. between trying your best, but then if you fail, so a lot of people when they're just hard on themselves, when they fail, they just give up. Or they, you know, they just procrastinate because they can't handle the sting of failure. But if failure isn't a problem, you know, okay, well, if I fail, then I just, everyone fails. You know, what can I learn from this? Then people are more likely just to pick themselves up to try again. You know, maybe you maybe need to do something different if it's not working for you, you know? So it's, it's not contingent on success. You try to be successful because you love yourself and you care about yourself. And if you fail, then you just try again or maybe try something new. Mm. 
And, you know, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, everyone has this reaction like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> that's why it's not more known because it's just like this basic logic, you know. It, it, it does make a lot of sense. I, I have so many questions I need to ask you. So be, be, before I do, I, uh, I normally stop in the middle and say, can you please press the five stars here? Like if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, seriously, you know, what Kristen is saying is worthy of a million people listen, listening to it. So please... Uh, help us uh, spread the message. Uh, uh, post on social media, tell your friends about this, make it uh, uh, viral so that we can reach as many people as we can. Kristen, I can't let go of the topic of women. So when yes. you spoke about women and self-esteem and you know, uh-huh. it just puzzled me immensely wh- while you were talking because by definition, women have the higher, or the feminine, let's call it, has the higher empathy. They have the higher sense of compassion. They are the ones that can feel outwardly the feeling of others, wanting others to feel safe and loved and protected. Mm -hmm. And yet, and I don't want to generalize, but yet it's so often that women are so harsh on themselves. You know, two, two pounds, you know, you gain two pounds and suddenly it's like you're the ultimate sinner that destroyed the world. It's, it's just, how does that work? Yeah. And that's what the research shows. So women are more compassionate to other people than men are. And that difference is pretty substantial. And they're also less self-compassionate than men are. You know, mm. the difference is small, but it's consistent. We've tested is, is, it. Is that no inherent money. in the feminine and masculine or is that something we've been conditioned to? Well, you know, look at the power structure of society. I'm sorry, but you know. No, no, don't be sorry. I love this topic. You know, because um, women are given, they're they're considered less valuable. Their worth comes from helping others. We're we're liked if we help others. You know, if if we meet our needs, people call us selfish. We don't have as much power or resources in society to meet our needs. Men are more entitled to to go for it and, you know, make themselves happy than women are. We're we're told, well, that's not really being a good woman. So I think it's um, a lot of it's just gender socialization, right? And then there's, there's also some, some arguments that women are more self-critical, um, and that could be partly because we're in more of a threat state. Again, you're going to be more threatened if you don't have the power in society, right? So, so when you're in a threat state, you're more negative. You're more focused on threat because it's more scarier for you. And then when you feel threatened, again, you often respond with self-criticism as a way to try to, you think you're trying, you're keeping yourself safe. So a woman criticizes herself for gaining weight. It's probably because she feels like, well, I won't be liked as a woman because my value comes from looking a certain way. This is dangerous. So maybe if I beat myself up for gaining a couple of pounds, I'll lose it. Then I'll be safe again. You know, so you, you can't really disentangle power um, and, and the way society treats certain groups from self-compassion as well. But how do, how, do we, how do we change that? How do we help a woman see this differently? So that's why my, 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 the book I'm writing now is called Fierce Self-Compassion. It's aimed squarely at women. <laughs> oh, I love so, that. Share more. Yeah. So for instance, like women aren't allowed to be angry. Well, sometimes anger is an act of self-protective love. You know, of we course. should be angry. Absolutely. You know? Anytime, you know, not just women, anyone who's a victim of injustice, we should be angry. If we aren't angry, there's, there's something wrong. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, how, what do we do with that anger? Do we just like, you know, decimate other people and they become violent or, you know, just scream at everyone? No, that's not helpful. You've got to aim the anger effectively, but we should be angry. But women aren't allowed to be angry because, it's, you know, people love it when men are angry. 
you know, they, they, there's lots of research that shows an angry man, he's more respected. He must really, he must be passionate. But people don't like angry women. They think she's crazy and they actually like her less. So we need to change all that. Or if we can't change all that, we need to say, well, whatever. I, mean, I don't care about that. I'm just going to do it anyway. But we need to channel it in a way that's in the purpose, in, in, for the good in terms of channel it to alleviate suffering. That's why I like this as a form of self-compassion. And also no, no, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I yeah. love this. This is the second time in two weeks that I get this. I, I interviewed Arun Gandhi and he was talking about the gift of anger. Yes. And so you're, you're saying I can use anger to alleviate suffering. Yes, absolutely. But the anger of injustice is aimed, it's not aimed at just, you know, cutting down the people who are causing the injustice. It's aimed at alleviating suffering, mm. you know? So if I'm angry at someone in my relationship who's mistreating me, that's the, the voice saying, hey, you need to protect yourself because I care about so you. So profound. This is so profound. It's all about love, really, you know? So, so, so part of self-love here is I am aware, I'm mindful of that feeling inside me yes. that is basically telling me I need to do something. I right? need to do something to protect myself. And it comes from love. You Absolutely. know, we love ourselves. We will, be, we'll, we will be angry at people that are mistreating our, and, us. And I, and I should not suppress that because I'm told I'm not supposed to be angry. That's right. So I'll, I'll tell you just, so the reason I was so inspired to write this book is I, I had someone very close to me. It was kind of, I kind of go into the book and it's a long story and I don't want to go into it here, but someone who I was very close to turned out to be a sex predator. So when I, a young girl I was very close to, she was almost like a daughter with me, had been abused by him and he was abusing all these people. And he was like one of these narcissistic con men, kind of like a Harvey Weinstein and someone who was in my inner circle. And it just like, whoa, you know, and the, kind of the Me Too movement. I see the Me Too movement as the collective arising of the female young. It's like, we aren't going to just brush this aside. We aren't going to say, oh, that's just the way men are. Uh-uh, it's not okay. It's not okay. And we're going to stand tall and we're going to say no. That is an act of self-compassion. You know, and I think the whole, um, all that protests about race going on, it's the same thing. This is an outpouring of love. No, it's not okay. We are going to stand up and say no. Mm. And this is really just, again, an act of love, protection. And it's not just self-protection, because I mean, in a way, it's all of us, right? So I'm white, totally. but racial injustice affects me because it affects society. And so in some ways, the line between self and other, you know, it's like it gets really blurred. We just need to work for the alleviation of suffering, which means justice which means economic equality, which means, you know, universal health care, all these things, these are all like, they're all tied in to the goal of compassion, which is the alleviation of suffering um, for self and others. And at some level, the distinction kind of falls away. I, I can't tell you how much I love the, what you're saying, because when I, when I looked at your work originally, and please don't get me wrong, I, I felt your, your work was much more on the feminine side of compassion, care for myself, care, you know, uh, uh, be mindful, be aware. That's very, very yes. feminine, right? Uh, remind yourself that life is, is, is like that and so on. So all of that support is the nurturing side of the feminine. Now you're talking about the masculine side of compassion. I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to do it mindfully. I'm going to do it respectfully, but I'm going to allow myself to engage. I'm going to allow myself to change the world and my world yes. for the better. But, you know, and, and I know so yin and yang, you know, traditionally it's considered masculine and feminine, but you know, if you really want to look at this angry energy, Think of Kali, 
Or think of mama bear. That's also part of the feminine. Totally. This rage is also part of the feminine. It's not just a masculine energy. Interesting. Right? And I think the gendering of this stuff has really messed us up. I mean, men, men aren't allowed to be in touch with their tender emotions because it's considered Absolutely. Now, you know, so, so what we need to do is get beyond male or female and just see these as universal life force energies that we all need access to. And every single individual is going to express these energies differently. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't see them as male. I don't see them as male and female. I see them as feminine and masculine. I that's see right. them embodied in every one of us. And that's why, that's why I like the term yin and yang because feminine, very quickly people like associate that with gender roles. And I, it's understandable, but that's why I like the terms yin and yang because we can get away from male and female and we just realize that you know whether you're asexual or you of know course. whatever whatever gender Absolutely. or identity you are it doesn't matter these are just universal life force principles everyone needs to be allowed to develop and express i, I really think one of the biggest harms we've done to society is by these you know constricting gender roles I, I, I will have to, I can't let go of the topic, so I'm going to ask one more question. Okay. I'm sorry. So at the beginning, when you spoke about the difference between self-esteem and self-compassion, yeah, one of the interesting sides of self-esteem is how women are taught that self-esteem is around physical looks. That, yes. that I, I can only compete in society and feel good about myself if I'm more attractive Yes. than the other person. That's a topic that is so harsh to my heart because I actually think everyone is attractive in their own yes. way, right? And, and there has been this very rigid definition of what's attractive and what's not, which contradicts reality. I mean, if you go to a dating site, everyone is interested in a different type, you know, the different body type, different background, different ethnicity, different color, different everything. You know, there is no real definition of attractive. So that self-esteem needs to be addressed with self-compassion. That's that wrong direction of self-esteem. Yeah. And so what we know from, from again, the research is that self-compassion reduces, we call that contingent self-esteem. You know, it's my, it's my self-esteem, my sense of self-worth contingent on how attractive I think I am um, or how much people like me or um, how successful I think I am. And so we know for one, one study, we, we had, it was aimed at women with body image issues. They listened to self-compassion meditations that are on my website for three weeks. And afterward, their sense of self-worth was less contingent on their perceived attractiveness. They actually found other ways of valuing themselves that wasn't dependent on their perceived attractiveness. And that was just after three weeks. So, so these things are changeable. You right. know, we just need to, to it, it is a practice. The thing is, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be a practice like I'm going to sit for 30 minutes every morning and do this. They, they did in this one study and, and it's a great way to do it. It really helps. But just any time you notice you're, you're in pain, you know, that's your, that's your moment to practice. Whether the pain is like a self-judgment about your looks or it's just because, you know, you're so lonely because of COVID or you have financial troubles or whatever it is, any moment of suffering, that's a moment where we do what we can to help. And even, even you know, oftentimes we can't change things. Sometimes we can do quite a lot, but sometimes, you know, there's nothing we can do. You know, if you have a terminal illness, you can maybe help, but, you know, that, that's just going to happen. But how do you relate to yourself in this situation where there's not much you can do? Even um, and, then, yes. and so it, it, you know, and we can really, really change our experience in a way that we don't get so overwhelmed by the pain. We're stronger. We're more resilient. Um, we're less likely to develop things like post-traumatic stress syndrome. I mean, there's, there's probably 3,000 research studies now showing the benefits of self-compassion. It's really quite phenomenal. And it's easy to do. It's like in our back pocket. 
you just have to remember to bring it out. We, 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 just, we just have to listen to you all the time. Go to your meditations, <laughs> read your book, uh, attend the, the, the training. I mean, guys, seriously. I, I'll, I'll close by saying, Kristen, I have always said that the second biggest reason for unhappiness in the world is ego. And people rarely ever ask me what the first reason is. And I, and, and I know in my heart that their first top reason for unhappiness in the world is the lack of self-love, lack of self-compassion. And so to me, what you bring to us today is profound. It's of paramount importance because this truly is the pandemic. If you ask me, what is the pandemic that is affecting humanity? It's, because it's that we've become too harsh, too harsh to ourselves, too uh, uh, um, uh, unforgiving, too pushy. It's almost like I'm treating, I, I don't know, I'm a machine. It's, it's becoming so painful for all of us. And I think what you're bringing is incredible. You're a true scientific angel, which is a very interesting <laughs> mix. I am so grateful. Just, just to make one comment, that the number one and number two are related. So a self-compassion. So what we know when you're self-compassionate, your ego recedes because it's no longer about you. Interesting. It's about life. That's common humanity. Oh. That's also what it's pointing to is lessened ego. You know, it's not me. This is just the causes and conditions that arose. So I don't need to judge myself because, you know, but, but you take responsibility, but you don't take it so personally. So self-compassionate people take things less personally. Their egos are less defensive and less reactive. So the two build on each other. So you're, you're so amazing. I, I would agree with you on your, on your points one and two. <laughs> you're amazing, amazing, amazing. I am so grateful, so grateful that you gave us the time. I will learn. Uh, I will apply what you uh, taught me. I think everyone should. And I sometimes I, I rarely ever feel that, but sometimes I go like, I wish I was her. I wish I'd get this one. <laughs> Kristen. I, I suffer like everyone else. So. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. Kristen, thank you yeah. so much. Okay. Thank you, Mo. It was lovely. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy. <laughs>